And now that the video is recording, eventually, one of these days, I'm pretty sure, I'm reasonably confident in any case, that I hit, like I hit the play button on the music. There we go. Now, now it starts to play because sometimes it takes a little while to play a, a piece of sound from the thing that's specifically designed for that uh, explicit purpose. Because, you know. Episode of Surreal Politics. Today is June 19th, 2023. It's Juneteenth, everybody. Happy Juneteenth. I know that you guys uh, took time out of your busy day from celebrating Juneteenth to join me for this live airing of the show, and I am very honored by that. I I uh, I, I wouldn't normally want to interrupt your Juneteenth celebration, but this is a very uh, this is a very good show, and so I'm glad that you tuned in. Number to call in 217-688-1433 if you would like to be on the program. And the more you talk, the less I have to, as I'm fond of saying. This is episode 14 of Stage 1. Good to be with you. And uh, I will just, uh, I'll brag a little bit. I think uh, i think our audio quality has improved a little bit. I worked over the weekend. First thing I did was I actually, I switched out uh, my mixer, and I have another of the same microphone that I normally use. I am speaking to you in a different microphone that I just purchased. It just got here today. And uh, I'll talk a little shop with you real quick that, you know, there's such a thing as a dynamic microphone and there's such a thing as a um, as a condenser microphone and a condenser microphone requires what's known as uh, phantom power needs to be um, it needs uh, uh, electricity to be delivered to it to power the microphone. And it is prone to picking up everything in the room. And you might have noticed that if you have heard me yell at my robotic vacuum, for example, um, that's just one of the more prominent examples. That thing was loud enough that you might hear it on this microphone, too. But I'm reasonably confident that you don't hear the fan that's blowing right now. So I'm going to stop sweating on camera. Isn't that a great idea? Uh, <laughs> I'm actually going to buy a better microphone. I, I purchased this one. This was a, a, um, a discount. This was a uh, not very expensive microphone. I got this on um, Amazon for like $40. Um, but it's, uh, I think it's, uh, I think it's pretty good. Don't you? I think it's pretty good too. And you know, uh, there was a couple of times, uh, recent episodes that like the intro music was all distorted. I noticed, uh, I'm sure you noticed that. I certainly noticed it was driving me nuts when I was releasing the podcast afterwards. I was, uh, I was going in and editing out the music that I played in the intro and, and like manually inserting the MP3 of the, uh, of the intro music because the intro music is very good. It's been produced by a professional artist who goes by the name of Scotty Jam Jam, and he's very talented, and I wouldn't want to go ahead and, like, waste his talents with distorted audio. And so 
I realized that like there was a couple of problems. One, I think the mixer was had it. I think that that was largely it. That you know, it's a very. I've had this equipment for a very long time. It sat in storage for three years while I didn't have um, access to the internet, and so I swapped out the mixer and I used the exact same version of a of uh, the the exact same type of microphone, but a different one, and it was and it was sounding a lot better over the weekend. And then I purchased this thing, and Amazon got it to me right away, as Amazon is prone to do. And so here we are. We are speaking to you in the, um, what is the, uh, I'll tell you the model number in case you're interested to know. Most of you aren't, but some of you are. And this is uh, this is a FDUCE. I don't know how you spell FDUCE. SL40X XLR dynamic microphone for vocal recording. And so I was looking for the SM7B, which is what I'm going to purchase. Um, but the SM7B is, uh, it costs a few bucks, let's say. On Amazon, it's $400. And you can get them for less than that. Um, but I was not in a position to spend $400 at the moment. And so I am, uh, I'm going to buy that SM7B. is like the famous microphone. It's you know, reputed to be used by all of the, uh, all of the top-notch radio hosts. And I'm going to go buy that thing. I'm just, uh, I, I don't have it yet. And so this is my Fiduci, and it's not so bad, right? It's actually, I think it's pretty good. You know, um, and speaking of buying things, you know, I, I recently had occasion to consider a subject too often overlooked, which forms no small part of the foundation of all politics. It does so because it is at the heart of all human motivations. One might say without it, there is no such thing as motivation. And this is the question of value. While this is in some portion closely related to our talk from episode six, which I had titled Misesian Socialism, um, it ought not be mistaken for a purely economic phenomenon. Value is central to all human relationships, not the least of which are those we define as political. Value is often mistaken as money or objects exchangeable for money, um, services as well, though too often narrowly defined. Too often too narrowly defined, I should say. Value is the satisfaction of human wants or the mitigation of human discomforts. Okay. And so that can obviously take a great many forms that we try to um, squeeze this into a money box and this causes things to get distorted. And of course, it causes people to misinterpret money as well, I would think it's safe to say. Elsewhere, I had a lengthy conversation with a very interesting and very intelligent gentleman um, who said that we need to get money out of our politics. And this is this is a popular enough idea. And given the rampant criminality in our governments, you know, you can you can imagine how one would be drawn to that kind of idea. His suggestion was that based on a certain degree of popular support, as evidenced by petition signatures, a person or party um, would become eligible for public resources to spend on a political campaign, the public financing of political campaigns. It necessarily follows from this that no other political spending is permissible. And in this way goes the theory we get money out of politics and goes the theory in this way we reduce corruption in government. OK, that's a fine theory. Let us consider this in practice a little bit, if we shall. And by the way, I should state that um, I'm looking forward to speaking with this gentleman again. I'm not trying to, like, refute him off the air. This is a popular idea, and I'm, I'm not trying to attack him specifically in this, I, I should state. And I don't think that what you'll hear me talk about going forward should be deemed as an attack on anybody. He's really going over a, a sincere political question. It might go without saying that politicians are beholden to those who finance their campaigns. Owing to the obviousness of this, in the United States, there are very significant um, limitations on what one can donate to a candidate for federal office. Currently, right now, there are very severe limitations 
Well, whether you consider them severe or not is a is a question of your own hierarchy of values, of course. But they are significant, uh, to be sure. I think that we can objectively say that. Theory being, if you limit what one person can spend on political campaigns, you can limit that individual's influence and thereby make the society more um, theoretically democratic by spreading power more evenly over the population. According to the Federal Elections Commission, an individual may donate no more than $3,300 to any candidate for public office in a given election. He may also donate up to $5,000 per year to any super PAC, a combined total of $10,000 per year to any state-slash-local-slash-district party committee, $41,300 to any national party, and $123,900 per account per year to, quote, any additional national party committee accounts. Now, that last one sounds like something of a loophole, if you ask me. I, I, you know, I have not contacted an attorney about what precisely that means. Whoa, hey. You're a nice mic, but don't let me find out that your mic stand sucks. Come on, stay where I put you. Come on. Well, that was terrible. Okay. <laughs> so it stands out as a bit of a loophole, but these things are by no means uncommon and, as we'll discuss, ultimately unavoidable. Similar, though not identical, limits apply regarding transfers from committees to candidates. Corporations, you might have heard, or they can spend unlimited funds on campaigns. Unlike you, sucker, you're a human being. You can't spend more than $3,300, but a corporation can spend billions. You might have heard that. And you might have heard that because Democrats are liars and lots of people are stupid or ignorant, I should say. Corporations are prohibited under federal law from contributing money to politicians. That is a fact. This popular myth stems from the Supreme Court case known as Citizens United, in which a private entity made a film critical of Hillary Clinton. They were sued for violating campaign finance law under the theory that one may not spend money to make political statements on their own volition. <laughs> Rightly, the filmmakers prevailed, and ever since then, we have been hearing about corporate campaign contributions as if they were a real thing. They are not. That is fake. There is also something known as the um, in-kind contribution, which is an interesting subject. In this, if, say, a landlord provides a rent-free office space to a candidate's committee, this must be recorded as a campaign contribution by calculating the value of the rent and recording it in much the way uh, they would had he written a check for the same amount. With all these limits, why is it so popularly believed that billionaires and corporations are buying politicians? Well, because they are. Firstly, these limitations are fake fundamentally and not because the law isn't enforced. People go to jail for violating these laws. It has happened relatively recently. Um, if Pfizer writes a check to Joe Biden, somebody's going to get in trouble. If I donate $3,400 to Donald Trump, I'm going to get a $100 refund rather quickly, whether I like it or not. But if Pfizer pays CNN millions of dollars for advertising and CNN demonizes Joe Biden's political opponents while covering up Joe Biden's many crimes— then this is not considered a campaign contribution. It's just dishonest media, which Americans consider one of those blessings of liberty, along with Drag Queen Story Hour. If Pfizer chooses not to advertise on Tucker Carlson because they dislike the political positions he espouses, no law requires them to spend advertising dollars where they do not see fit to spend them. Freedom of speech, be though it may, a questionable value is valued by most Americans. The idea that money is somehow separable from this is based in large part on our misconceptions of value, though one might argue it is more of an intentional deception by the powerful seeking to avoid being criticized too loudly. 
Say a man buys no advertisements but covers his car in his favored candidate's bumper stickers and drives around the country singing the man's praises. Is his fuel expenditure a campaign contribution? His time? Shall we prohibit him from doing this in order to get money out of politics? And to be clear, as many of you know, I am not an advocate of free speech. I believe men of good character ought to be free to speak the truth as they see it and to discover and correct their errors through debate. But I am perfectly fine with imprisoning communists and gender fanatics for spreading lies. And while I do not favor any barrier to being recognized as a news agency, I am all for locking up self-styled reporters who poison the minds of the population for a short-sighted political game. I'm not making an argument for free speech. I'm only recognizing that money and speech are inseparable because speech is valuable and money exists to facilitate the storage and transmission of value. And at the end of the day, you can transfer as much value as you want to anyone, limited only by your uh, access thereto. You, uh, you just have to label it something other than a campaign contribution. The example above of Pfizer purchasing advertisements is only the most obvious example of washing campaign contributions in this way. While one may only donate so much to a political campaign, one may donate as much as he likes in tax-deductible fashion, no less, to a 501c organization. A 501c organization is prohibited by law from endorsing candidates, of course, but they are more than welcome to champion the causes of political significance and to work in areas that aid candidates. Especially on the left, they do this all of the time. Mark Zuckerberg, Center for Tech and Civic Life, notably a 501c organization, is a 501c3, I believe. Um, they deployed their own resources ostensibly to increase ballot access. That was the story. They were like, oh, well, we're very concerned about COVID preventing black people from voting. So we're going to get all on that. All right. And so they did, of course. Where did they do this? Well, they did it in disproportionately Democrat prone districts, of course. And they did it, you know, to help minorities who vote for Democrats, and these sorts of things. Their list of election interference operations is too long to get into today. We only have two hours, after all. But if you read Molly Hemingway's book, Rigged, you'll be shocked at their behavior. There is countless such foundations, whether ostensibly focused on fighting racism or advancing abortion under the guise of women's rights or transgenderism or you name it, that serve as vehicles for criminals to influence government by washing tax-free money into political influence. Then, of course, there is what is known as speaking fees, which I've always found very amusing. Um, you know, politicians are interesting characters. They pay to hear for you to hear their messages. That's why they're buying advertisements, you might have gathered. <laughs> it's the whole entire point of the enterprise. That's that's a reason that they get com campaign contributions is because they pay people to listen to them. But, you know, uh, if you want to hire them to speak at your event, you know, it's just business. <laughs> Right. It's not a campaign contribution. You're just hiring him to do some public speaking. And so, you know, that's one way to do it. I, I've heard Bill Clinton famously gets paid a lot of money to do this. So if you are someone who is normally paid and you get paid a great deal of money to speak, but you speak for free on a man's behalf. Well, you know, that's that's different. That's just volunteering. That's just you using your time. It's just free speech. It's not a campaign contribution. If your time is valuable and you donate your time, that's completely different than if you Go spend that time working and then give the guy your money. It's a completely different category of issue. And so totally unregulated, not a big deal. Book deals, other forms of business, none of these things are considered campaign contributions. And so it should come as no surprise that people who run for office often publish a book right before they do. 
To get money out of politics, would we say that there could be no nonprofit organizations which discuss anything of political significance? Would we say that um, corporations could not run advertisements for their products if they carried political overtones in their message? Should book publishers have a prohibition on publishing the words of political actors? Would such a prohibition have anything resembling enforceability? I have my doubts personally. You'll hear me say from time to time, ladies and gentlemen, that there is no substitute for good people. There's no form of government that can make up for a population of fools or crooks, impose upon them a righteous king, deprive them of the vote, and they will defy the king. Give them the vote, and the government will carry out their foolish and crooked wishes. That's all there is to it. It was said at the time of our Constitution's ratification that it was fit only for a moral and religious people. And the only, pe- the only problem with that statement is the idea that there might be some form of government fit for any other type, <laughs> you know. The only thing campaign finance regulations do is reward dishonest people, as it were. You make it more difficult for honest people to compete is what you do. Honest people, first of all, tend to lack the capacity to make, you know, outsized campaign contributions because crooks are in control of the government and make sure that all those opportunities go to the people who do crooked things, of course. But among those who are so gifted, they simply obey the law, not only in the letter, but in the spirit. They're like, okay, well, if I'm only allowed to donate $3,300 to Donald Trump, then I guess I'll just give Donald Trump the $3,300 and and that'll be the end of that. They're not like running around trying to subvert the law. They're honest people. Like the fact that there are ways for them to do it doesn't even occur to them. They're like, oh, well, the law is that I do this. And so I guess I'm just going to have to obey the law. Dishonest people are like, okay, well. Let's figure out how I obey the law and completely screw you anyway. <laughs> you know, that's that's the entire purpose of the dishonest enterprise is to legally screw people over. And of course, there's always going to be a way to do that. No substitute for good people, ladies and gentlemen. So criminals do that. And that, my friends, is why money influences your politics in such caustic fashion. And I dare say that you will not do away with that with public financing of campaigns. You know what you will end up doing, however? You will end up paying for transgender people to run for office. That's that's what you will end up doing. You will have taxpayers funding the campaigns of maniacs who you do not want in government. That's that you will accomplish that much. And, you know, if you feel like that's a good idea, then have at it. Speaking of moral and religious people, let's just consider um, something more nuanced than political influence. Some of you may know, if you follow me on Telegram at Gab, I attended church yesterday for the first time in six years. And I was very conflicted about this, you might have heard, because I do not share the beliefs of the congregants. On this show and elsewhere, it is not all at all infrequent, I should say, that I touch on subject matter that it has relevance to religious people. And when I do this, you might notice that I uniformly make some mention of my own lack of faith. And this is by no means because I want to distance myself from religious people. Actually, this stems from my certainty that I stand to derive a great deal of value from such an association, and because I am not owed this value, I do not want to obtain it by deceptive omission. I have an ethical concern that I do not want to take advantage of religious people by soliciting donations from them after they have been allowed to make faulty inferences from other things I have said. Some Christians in this audience have nonetheless been very generous with me, thank you very much, and it is not at all infrequent that they invoke the name of the Lord when they do, and I am more than capable of discerning incentives from this, and I am very cautious not to take advantage of those folks because they are very moral and religious and decent people, and that would be a terrible thing for me to do. But of course, value is more than donations, right? I mentioned before that um, uh, people have called into uh, my other show 
saying that I should go to church to find a wife. And I thought that this would be an extremely disreputable thing for me to do. What could be more valuable than a wife? I dare say. Well, I shouldn't say nothing because I don't know everything in the world, but as a 42-year-old single guy, I might say eh, probably nothing. My attendance yesterday was not spontaneous. A local friend has invited me to go several times, and I declined each time, stating a number of reasons, but most notably that I would obtain undeserved benefits from it. I was recently at a social gathering with this friend, and her other friends from church were there, and they extended a similar invitation. And I expressed to them these concerns, and they assured me that I'd be committing no wrong, so I attended. But I also had some awareness that it was not nearly so simple as it was being made out to be, and, and this was promptly confirmed after the conclusion of services. I was met with invitations to go to other social gatherings subsequently, most notably. That's valuable, right? You say, hey, why don't you come do these things with me? Why don't you be my friend? Well, those are all valuable things. Though fortunately for me, this was by people who understood to some degree my conflict, so I didn't have to worry so much about being like, well, before I accept your invitation, you should know that I don't believe the things you believe. That would have been, you know, that, that's uncomfortable. But I also got the not at all subtle hint that they believed that they might get me to believe, and this uh, had its own conflict, right? Having done some sales work in the past, I would not waste a salesman's time. It is a very valuable thing, unless, of course, he contributes it to a politician, in which case it's, it's not valuable. <laughs> I have substantially less experience with peddling a religion, but I do not presume the time of those so invested to be worthless by any stretch of the imagination. And yet I do not think I should disrespect them by refusing to listen to what they have to say, especially when they are so over-the-top kind as the types I ran into yesterday. And importantly, I do not claim to know all things which I have not seen or experienced, of course. I cannot verify the absence of God any more than I can his existence, because my knowledge of the universe is decidedly limited, even in those fields I can, without guilt, call myself an expert in. I learn new things all the time. These lessons are in some cases world-changing, and I would not for one second think it prudent to wall myself off from all new information. But as a consequence of not having so walled myself off, I have read the Bible no fewer than three times. I have read C.S. Lewis and William Lane Craig and Bishop Callistos Ware and attended religious study as a child. I've watched YouTube videos of Christians debating atheists and cheered for both sides at different times in my life. I've also read atheist books and found them rather dissatisfying, and none of these things have ever caused me to suspect there is anything that could be recognized as a god, much less one that proved the doctrines which I have studied. And so I am made to complicate, uh, contemplate, I should say. Complicate, yes, indeed. That's what contemplation does. You should just make it simple and not think about it, dummy. <laughs> I am made to contemplate the ethics of allowing these folks to make their advances, right? Am I depriving them of value by taking up time of theirs that could be better spent? Or would I be disrespecting them by showing them the respect that I would show a salesman? Returning to the example of a search for a wife, I brought this up to my new friends specifically. They said, well, of course, I should not do such a thing. But there is no harm to come to a gathering. Although I did not belabor the point, I am uh, the type to think four moves ahead. And so let me gain this out a little bit, right? Attend the gathering, meet new people, treat them with respect, in all likelihood develop warm relations with them. And these are all things which I would certainly deem valuable. Get invited to dinner. Well, that's a valuable thing indeed, though perhaps I can offset this by bringing a bottle of wine or some other token of my gratitude. Do I meet a woman in the course of this? Does she find me charming? Of course she does. All valuable things. 
Shall I refuse to be near a beautiful woman? Shall I be near her but refuse to hear of her religious views? Shall I refuse her invitations to events? Shall I stop short only of marriage or should I stop before we kiss? I don't know. These are all very valuable things. And so these are contemplations that I must make in the course of this. And uh, I would go so far as to say that these are not simple calculations. Value is the satisfaction of human wants or the um, the mitigation of human uneasiness. And you cannot measure it in dollars. It's not how things work. If you, if you eliminate money from things, you don't solve problems, as a matter of fact. There's no money exchanging hands in the latter half of this monologue, right? I'm not, this is not about exchanging dollars or, you know, gold or something that, corn or chickens or something. We're not, tra we're not trading monetized commodities here. We're talking about, um, you know, value. And it's a completely different topic of discussion. And it's completely lost on people, sadly, you know. And your hierarchy of values, you know, the things that you want politicians to do are valuable. That's the, like kind of the whole idea, right? You talk about like quid pro quo. You're not allowed to have a quid pro quo. You, you know, even if you, if you say, Donald Trump, I'm going to donate $3,300 to your campaign, sir. But when you get into office, you've got to do the things that I want you to do. And he's like, okay, we'll sign a contract. That's what's called a quid pro quo. And you're not allowed to have that in politics. <laughs> and you wonder why politicians break their, their campaign promises, right? They don't, they, you're not allowed to sell policy positions, right? Well, don't I wish that they were, right? You know, how much money do I need to spend to get the border wall built? How much does that cost? I don't know, you know. I, I you know, I don't, I'm sure I don't have it, but, you know, if I, you know, if I thought that I could, I'd be like, all right, like, let's hire a guy to get the wall built, right? No, you can't. You can't do that because that would be selling policy. You're not allowed to do that. You're only allowed to make vague, you, well, they don't even really count as promises, right? Because they, there's no enforceable measure to the agreement. It's complete horse stuff. Woo, this is surreal politics. You don't talk like that here. What's wrong with you? 217-688-1433 if you'd like to be on the program. And I'm going to talk the less I have to, so please do give us a call. And so I think uh, I think we're screwed, basically, is really the moral of the story here. Um, the, there's going to be money in your politics. And you know what? There's going to be, um, there's going to be value in your relationships, and uh, you're not going to be able to measure it in dollars. And you're going to have to contemplate these things, and sometimes you're going to be conflicted about it. And eventually... Um, you'll get over it. Or no, you won't. I, I, that's, that's a lie. I don't mean to deceive you. You're not going to get over it. 217-688-1433 if you'd like to be on the program. Um, let me see here. Why is uh, my, uh, my news tab taking so long to load? That's kind of a problem. I'm trying to pull up news here. And uh, this thing is uh, it's taking its time. And I'm like, well, you take your time like when I'm doing this in the morning. You don't take time when I'm doing this at 930 because these people are watching a live broadcast. And um, that is uh, that is that is not the way that we're supposed to entertain our audiences. And so uh, why does Gen Z prefer dogs to babies? Well, because that's their hierarchy of values. That's what they value. They value dogs, and that's why we're going to die. <laughs> that's why America is dying. That's why the Democrats are replacing us with immigrants. And um, and that's why your values need to be, well, maybe not yours. You listen to me. That's why the country's values need to be rearranged. But somebody called in. I forget if it was here or the other show. Somebody called in about this, about like people being obsessed with their pets. And, 
at the time, I was like, what are you talking about, dude? Like, okay, like if people like want pets instead of children, that's not good. But I was I was not really so aware of this being such a prominent phenomenon. And I actually haven't read this story yet. But I um but I saw something else about it subsequent that we actually talked about in the Surreal Politics um, Telegram group, which you should actually, you should really join that, by the way. If you're not on Telegram, like, what are you doing? What are you really doing with your, what are you on, Facebook? <laughs> you're on Facebook? What are you, 90? Come on. I mean, I respect my elders. I'm not trying to disrespect people in the audience who are 90, but, like, come on. Like, what do you do on Facebook? Like, what are you even allowed to talk about on Facebook, right? Is the weather racist yet? I've heard about, like, climate climate racism uh whether it's not climate race it's environmental racism causing climate change that's what i'm thinking of right so are you even allowed to discuss the, like if you say it's nice out today does somebody accuse you of endorsing environmental racism does that happen on facebook yet because if it doesn't yet it will okay you're not allowed to praise the weather because it's the consequence of white supremacy and you need to stop it all right so i don't think that you're allowed to talk about anything on facebook unless you're like I think that you're allowed to recruit kids to become transgender on Facebook. You're still allowed to do that. So, I mean, if that's what you're into, then use Facebook. If you're not into that, you should be on Telegram, definitely. And 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 you should then um, join the Surreal Politiques Telegram channel. And if you join the Telegram channel, then that will lead you, by going into the comments of that, you'll you'll find the, um, the, the group. So Telegram, if you don't know, Telegram has channels, which are like one-way feeds where I'm just talking to you. And then they have groups, which is like a, a chat room, and it's 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 kind of like it's kind of like back in, um, you know, I don't know. Pick your time. They were popular at some point in history. They're less they're less frequently used today because everything basically is a chat room. Everything is you know real time messaging. But you know there was a thing called IRC once, and it was cool. And you guys missed out on it completely. It still exists, but you know you guys don't know anything about Merck scripts or flood bots or anything like that. You guys have been totally deprived of the joy of IRC. Why Gen Z prefers dogs to babies? 217-688-1433, if you would like to be on the program. And the more you talk, the less I have to. We'll get to that right after I take this call, as a matter of fact. Uh, caller, you are on Surreal Politics. What can I do for you, friend? Hello, this is Hatting in Florida. Hey, Hatting, how you doing? I'm okay. Uh, okay, I've got two topics here. Okay. You talked about taking the money out of politics. You know, this idea of being democracy. I'm sorry? Um, well, I hope you can understand. Uh, the idea of making democracy more democratic, of taking the influence of wealth out of politics, is not new. It's not a new problem. This was a problem in the first democracy in classical Athens, they had the same problem and they decided that the way ultimately they decided that the way to get the influence of money out of elections was to stop having elections. Well, that's, that's more wisdom so, than I see in most <laughs> discussions on this subject. But it, it's not as wise as you think. What they did was, uh, now the city of Athens was ruled by these, uh, this council of ten called Archons. <clears throat> 
And instead of electing the 10 archons, they drew by lot to determine who the 10 archons would be. Okay. They drew lots. Oh, so they did it randomly? (laughs) That's pretty funny. Yes. They randomly chose 10 citizens to be the rulers. Well, that's funny. The actual effect of that was to make the elected or the archon, it was to make the archons irrelevant. You know, it's funny, like, who is it? Do you, do you recall this? Like, I think it was I, I think it was William F. Buckley said he'd rather be governed by the first hundred names in the phone book or something like that than, than the people presently in the Congress. And it seems like they actually attempted this. Yeah, at some point. that was William F. Buckley. Uh, I think it was. Yeah. But uh, <clears throat> yeah, so they, they made their their nominal government irrelevant by choosing them at random because nobody had any confidence in them anymore. And what happened was the power, the actual political power in classical Athens devolved to the generals. The generals ended up ruling Athens because they were still elected. You know, they still had at least the respect of some people in order to be elected, you know, and, um, uh, Pericles, who was a very famous name, the uh, greatest leader of democratic Athens, he was de facto the dictator of Athens. It was effectively a one-man rule, even though nominally he was elected as a general and wasn't even supposed to be involved in politics, right? So that's how this actually works out. When you try really hard to make democracy as democratic as possible, it ends up backfiring. But Americans, American liberals, they don't know history. You know, they don't know that ultimately somebody is going to be in charge and you just kind of have to work with that fact. Well, that's kind of the thing. I I think you're absolutely right. And this is why, you know, um, I would go so far as to say that prior to the first democracy, there was probably money influencing the government too, right? Like money tends to exchange hands when people value what is going on. And if the government is doing anything of significance, there might be people who want to have a say in it. Right. And so like, I imagine that, I imagine that when democracy was being debated, they they were like, well, the King is enriching himself at the expense of the people. And therefore we should have the people govern or something to this effect probably came up more than once. And so like, yeah, like money is going to influence your government and you actually might want to take that into consideration rather than trying to, like, curse the gods and wish it not be the case, I'd say. Well, it it doesn't necessarily have to be the rule of money, all right? It is possible to take money out of politics, but you don't do that by trying to make it more democratic. You, You have to go backwards. You have to make it less democratic um, ultimately, populist movements tend to rely on a strong man to do the will of the people. That's what ends up happening. A strong man who doesn't have to worry about being elected, right? That's ultimately the way around these things. And it's in a way, it's a return to the beginning because governments begin as the, the military leader, right? That's what it is originally. It's the conqueror that rules. Well, yeah, 
And I, I so, would say that, and I would say that after the conqueror rules, he's he's probably going to do things with money, you know. And if the conqueror, well, is, and if the conqueror is a scumbag, then he will take advantage of the people for financial gain. And if the conqueror has conquered uh, in order to act out something that he values higher than money, then he might govern good. And if somebody runs for a political office and is elected, and he values something more than money, then then he might govern well too, right? But like, I don't think well, that there's any substitute for good people. Is kind of like the was kind of the theme of what I was getting that's at. That like, true. you can't you money is going to money is going to exchange hands. And the question is, are the people going to act corruptly as a consequence of the money? Well, I would go so far as to say that it's not the money that's causing them to act corruptly. I, I don't think that there's a whole lot of evidence for that to be the case. I, I think that the money is just how it's measured it's it's the unit of account of the corruption and so like you know the idea that you're going to get money like there's value exchanging the whole like if we didn't the idea that you would get money out of politics would, would be to say that politics is not valuable and that is silly in the extreme i would say it, it, there's no way to do this because um money is going to influence these things one way or the other it's a question of are honest people able to do it in plain sight or is it done through all manner of chicanery? That I think is really the the question. Yeah. Well, you're you're looking at this through uh, an American lens, and especially through a libertarian lens, where everything is about exchange of value. Uh, I would suggest that you read Book Eight of Plato's Republic where he talks about the different forms of government that succeed each other as the society decays, right? The, the, the original state is, is, is not governed by money because people who take what they want by force of arms, why do they need money? You know, having money doesn't, they might want to have some things that uh, appeal to them, but they don't need money to buy them. Well, I, I, would, I would go so far as to say that thieves like money, too. And so, like, the, the fact that people take what they want by force does not does not prevent them from being influenced by exchange of value, I would say. And so I, I, I listened. I, I'm trying to recall what you're talking about. I, I listened to an audiobook version of Plato's Republic, and, and I don't I don't recall precisely this um, this discussion of money that you're talking about. But um, yeah, well, there are, there are five stages. The five five stages in the uh, decay of the state. All right. <clears throat> and uh, the oligarchy, which is the, the, the state that's ruled by money, I think is the third stage. Okay. All right. And that comes before democracy. Uh, <clears throat> but I wanted to mention one other thing. Uh, you, you talked about uh, Christie. You talked about God, believing in God. And, uh, you, I don't remember exactly, but you, you know, <clears throat> since I studied ancient Greek, um, and there's some things relating to ancient history and archeology, span um, I know enough that I can conclude that the Bible is bunk. All right. The Bible is absolutely bunk. <clears throat> However, there's no reason why God has to be tied to the Bible. Um, 
there were people in the ancient world, the, the Stoics, conspicuously, the Stoics believed in a providential God without even knowing about the Bible. Well, yeah, right. and, I, and I, am, the, I, am, uh, I am enthralled to Stoicism. I, 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 I like Stoicism. Okay, well, I guess we're done here then. What do you mean? Why are we well, done? Well, I mean, I, I think I made my point, that's all. Oh, all right. Well, I was hoping that you were going to impart, impart more wisdom upon the audience, because just because I like Stoicism doesn't mean that you have to go, but okay. Well, I, I'm, just, well I'm just saying that, I mean, I, know I could go into more details about what's impossible in the Bible, well, I would you say know, I would I say mean, that Arky. the the kind of the theme behind it is that there's a, a virgin birth and a man rises from the dead, and so you know it, there's it, it, when we be when when that is the main thrust of the story. I would imagine that there are <laughs> other things that emerge during the course of this in which one must um, suspend disbelief. Let's say, um, you know, the, well, what, what I think <clears throat> is um, it, it's obvious that um, religious belief has emerged amongst all peoples that I know of. I, I don't, I'm not sure that there was ever a culture that was really atheist that wasn't, like, modern and destroyed very rapidly, you know, um, or at least not explicitly, right? I mean, it, it seems to me that religious belief emerges spontaneously without, um, without education, right? They don't have to be indoctrinated to believe in deities or, or supernatural phenomenon in any case. I read an interesting book... Um, Religion Explained, I forget, I want to say, his, I think his name is Pascal Boyers. I, I'm not entirely certain of this. Um, and it was interesting that, like, what he did was he took, he went around and studied um, very obscure religions and um, or su supernatural belief systems, it might be more accurate to say, like like primitive tribes that believed the ancestors walked amongst them and, and these sorts of things, you know. And he and he tried to explain all. He tried to explain religious beliefs in terms of um, like Darwinian incentives and 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 biological deterministic um, uh, ways of thinking, shall we say, or evolutionary psychology. And I think that he did so in large part plausibly, um, though I'm not sure that. Um, you know, evolutionary psychology is such a phenomenon that you you basically posit these theories, and it's not. I don't think that they're disprovable. You know, um, unless they're preposterous, right? It, that's not the nature of the. Um, that's not the nature of the beast in any case. And so, but like you, I, I thought he was very interesting. He said, like, okay, well, you know, we have perceptions about death because, um, you know, a, a person is not in our like our conception of a human being is not the the body right there's more to it than that when a person dies and we see the body we don't think it's that person it's a body right and so um that like cognitive dissonance we're like looking at the person and creates all these things like well if they if that was the person then and they're not the person now then what happened to the person is kind of like this psychological trick that's played on us and i'm not doing a very good job of articulating but but that was one of the things that went on in this <clears throat> i don't know three or four hundred pages that i read and um, it was an interesting way of looking at it. I'm not sure that I, I've heard a whole lot of attempts to study this in those terms. And it was a, it was an interesting um, way to look at it because, you know, these things, they do emerge, you know, everywhere, right? And, and so the phenomenon of religious or superstitious belief is not unique. And um, the idea that, um, you know, there is one that is correct, I would say, is, 
at odds with that phenomenon? Well, I think that a de facto belief in God is, uh, it goes hand in hand with respect for authority and respect for elders and ancestors. All right, these things go together. Right, that God is like your father up in the sky. I mean, very often, you know. I mean, Jupiter. That 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 word, Jupiter. Jupiter was the chief deity in the Roman pantheon, right? <clears throat> Jupiter means um, day father, father of the day. Oh, that's what that means. I didn't know. But that. There, it, it, yeah, it was uh, dies pater originally, and it, it got compressed into Jupiter. So, yeah, the chief deity is conceived of as a father. So if you revere this father in the sky, it's kind of a continuation of the father that raised you, right? So it, it, it's conducive to orderly behavior. Um, so, it, yeah, it, it, it's, it's symptomatic of a, of, of a healthy society where people are going to get along. Yeah, and probably also helps to perpetuate that. Yeah, and I think that um, so tie, tying it to the Bible is like putting a lead anchor on it. I mean, as far as educated it, people this. are concerned, so like, I, 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 I kind of I used to think that, and and lately I'm I'm less certain of it. Okay, so like the the our people have a religious tradition. Okay, and that religious tradition is Christianity. And so I had lengthy arguments about this with Matt Hale. As a matter of fact, you may be aware that Matt Hale started a thing called the world church of the creator and he yeah. he attempted to basically create a a racial religion um in well wait a minute wait he took he wait a minute he tried to revive a religion that was already created yeah uh ben class by ben Classen, right and yes. he had a slightly different name he called it world church of the creator oh, okay Classen called it Church of the Creator, and he called it World Church of the Creator? Is that exactly. What? Okay, I actually wasn't yeah. aware of that distinction. He, he speaks very highly of class, and he tried to get me to read his book and stuff. Um, and so, but I was like, look, Matt, you know, you know, the, the people of this country, they have an identity, right? Like, they have, and you want, you want race to be a part of that identity. Okay, I think that that might be a reasonable goal. You, what you're doing is you're basically saying, okay, well, lose you, the country part of your identity and the religious part of your identity and adopt entirely this archetype that I'm creating essentially out of nowhere in the 70s. And I'm like, that is not going to work. Uh, that would not work if you were free, and it's certainly not going to work from prison. Uh, and so I, I, I am made to realize that, like, okay, you know, I think that religious belief is a, is a constituent element of, it, of identity that part of the reason that people attack that constituent element is part of the broader attack on us and that um, it is a positive thing to promote religious belief, right? Um, since, the, uh, since the religious tradition of our people is Christianity, it, do, it does not, in my view, make sense to, to try to um, uh, conjure from whole cloth a new one. Uh, and I don't know that I, I'm... Part of the conflict that I'm having here, Hatting, and I'll take, uh, I, I, I realize that you had one thing that you want to talk about, but you're smart, and so I'll, I'll ask for your input here, is like, I, I, I have come to the conclusion that religion is, is at, at the very least, a positive influence in society, and that um, it might very well be 
um, if not the only path to salvation, at least one of the most obvious ones. And yet I, uh, I, I, hold, I hold truth as amongst the highest values at the very least. And, and these, two, uh, these two concepts are in conflict with one another, if you follow what I'm saying. Yes. <clears throat> yeah, that's the problem. Now, Ben Klassen, uh, he became rabidly anti-Christian. Yes. Because he, because he was raised in an extremely intense form of Christianity. He was a Mennonite. Um, and when, when you, when you, when, when reason is, uh, growing in your mind, uh, you know, when you're an adolescent and you, you, you become aware of reason, uh, you begin to see the, the contradictions. And, uh, if you're conscientious about it, you may become quite indignant at what you were taught. <clears throat> You know, which is what happens with a lot of people who become really ardent atheists. They come from a very intense Christian upbringing, and they end up having to fight that for the rest of their lives. So they become very strongly anti-Christian. People from moderate religious backgrounds don't become rabidly anti-religious, right? I mean, I don't think so anyway. Well, I, I would um, say I would say that I I, I am um, I'm the exception to the rule then because I don't think that my my parents were religious extremists in any stretch of the imagination, but I've mentioned before you know that you know mom tried to raise me as Catholic and I didn't buy it and I was like and and I thought that it was a dishonest thing and I and I rebelled against it pretty hard for a long time. Um, it wasn't until mm-hmm. sort of my political views started changing that I was like oh wait a second that was really stupid of me, um, and so uh, but I think I think that your point. It, it still bears uh, a great deal of legitimacy that, like, if people if people are feeling that their religious upbringing has negatively impacted their satisfaction with life, then then they will rebel against it. I'd say, and, uh, and well, I, I mean, it's also that this the truthfulness factor, right? You realize this is just bunk. I can't I can't go pretend to believe this. Well, that's exactly like I was like, oh, my parents are lying to me. Right. Was my perception of it. OK, my, my parents are telling me this thing because in my case, like I, I realized that they it seemed to be that it was it seemed my perception of it was anyway. I shouldn't say what they knew or didn't know, but my perception of it was that, OK, you have to know that this isn't true and you're telling it to me, which means that you're a liar and therefore cannot be trusted was like my perception of it. And it created, you know, substantial problems in my household, I think it's fair to say. Um, and uh, and I imagine that that is entirely too common um, amongst people. On the other hand, like I go to this thing, I, I went to this, and I, like I, I mentioned online that like, I haven't been to church in six years. And when I went to church six years ago, I had not been to church in many years prior to that. And and when I went six years mm-hmm. ago, it was like a, a really awful experience and I, and I, and I left. Um, but like yesterday was really, it was actually kind of nice. Like I was kind of like, it, it was one of these things they described it as non-denominational charismatic, which was a little off-putting to me because I'm used to a little bit more ritual, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I was looking forward to like order and hierarchy and stuff like that. And this had like a band with guitars and drums and, and, and people were dancing and stuff. And I'm like, what do you, what, what is this? I'm like, you should be like, shouldn't somebody like yell at you for doing that or, you know. Um, and like the, the people who were performing the service were wearing the same clothes as us. And I was like, I had no idea, you know, what was going to happen next. 
Whereas, you know, I was raised in uh-huh. Catholic households, so like I go to I go to a I go to a church and you know exactly who's who by what they're wearing, you know, and 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 people are not, you know, people are not dancing and uh, yelling, you know, they're 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 uh, they're solemn and kneeling and stuff. And so I was like, what is this all about? And I was a little I was a little off put by it. But, you know, it was very nice because, you know, there were like uh, families there and they all were very clearly very happy. And, um, you know, I, I, I imagine that this is positive for people who would not be drawn to the solemnity of a Catholic service, let's say. Yeah, well, I, I, I bet that, uh, that the, 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 the particular church that you attended there was very vague about theology. They probably, it was probably just a lot of hippie stuff. It was not hippie no, sentimentality. No, it wasn't. Um, and, like from what I understand of it, I had been informed. Uh, I have been informed that they do not, as a general matter, um, engage in that sort of thing. Now, um, there are some specifics. I I could be more critical of the subject matter if I saw fit, but I'll I'll decline to do that today. But I, I've been informed that like they do not, for example, um, shy away from criticizing the gay stuff, for example. Okay. Um, Oh, that's good. Yeah, and and I've uh, I've been informed of other things that are categorically better than, shall we say, uh, would fall from the mouth of Pope, the Pope of the uh, Catholic Church presently, and so that is uh, that is interesting uh, to me for that reason. But I um, but there are criticisms which I'm not going to air today. But I would say that um, these things are. Um, yeah, so that's uh, that's that's my response to that. And I think that there are obviously. I mean, like I get really annoyed. Like they're all over the place in New Hampshire. That you go past a church and they've got the rainbow flag outside. I saw one that said, God, yeah. one that said God is still speaking." And I'm like, "Well, no, God spoke. Shut up. Listen. You know, uh, <laughs> you know, this is not. Uh, you're you're making it up as you go along. Is actually what you're doing, and uh, that is not that is not trustworthy. And I think that they love that stuff, right? You know, leftists, they, they hate religion unless it's subversive. You know, if you're a subversive church, you know, they'll they'll parade you around. Look at the religious figures that we have on our side. You're you're going against God by by disagreeing with us. But of course, if you invoke God, then you're a bigot and we'll stop you. You know, and so that's um, that's what they do. Uh, well, leftism in general is uh, being opposed to authority. They tend to be uh, enemies of any conception of God. Indeed, they are. And so, yeah. All right. Thank you very much, Hatting. I really appreciate. Um, Thank you. I appreciate your input and staying the extra time for me. Thank you very much, my friend. Two one seven six eight eight one four three three. If you would like to be on the program and more, you talk the less I have to. So please do give us a call. So as I said, uh, maybe because uh, maybe because they don't listen to God and they didn't like catch on to the whole um, uh, be fruitful and multiply thing. Uh, it would seem. Whoa! Well, I better read these uh, super chats uh, before I fall behind on these things. Uh, Tony says, great show. This is precisely why I enjoy listening to you. Great breakdown of a good topic. Uh, Tony, again, uh, also the biggest reasons I believe in God. One, it's honestly mind-blowing and amazing how perfect the circumstances of the universe are so that our planet can exist in such a perfect and precise position that it can sustain life. Two, a lot of scientists that study the body, life forms, DNA, etc., find life's construction so perfect and amazing that it's hard to ever believe it's just by chance. Well, that's 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 true. I'd say. 
three, I've done a good deal of reading, a lot of reading, he says, um, on near-death experiences where people's bodies physically die temporarily only to return with incredible stories and a profound belief in God, wild stuff, and certainly worth reading. Um, maybe next time says, are chimps atheists or do they believe in something? Is religion and theology a product of evolution in the brain like mathematics or are religious people suffering a delusion? I don't think they're suffering a delusion. I, like, I think I, I think it's the exact opposite. Like, I, I sincerely think that religious belief is is an is an adapted mechanism. It's it's a survival mechanism. And I think that uh, I, I think that people who don't have our best interests at heart subvert it for that reason. And it, it gives me a difficult thing to cope with conceptually, right? Because as I said to Hatting, it's like, I actually think that it's like really important. I, I, like, I, if you haven't seen this, I would encourage you, I, I put it on Telegram and I put it on my BitChute channel. Um, I put a video out titled Losing My Religion. It's a clip from Radical Agenda Stage 5, Episode 29, air date April 22nd, 2019. And what I what it was was like there was if you remember that period of time, it was right after Easter weekend in 2019. And there was these like there's a huge terrorist attack in Sri Lanka. And I was really bent out of shape because um, there were you might recall in 2019 it was like from 2018 through 2019, there was like all of these like mass shootings of guys who could broadly be categorized by the news as white supremacists, let's say. So there was like the the guy shut up the synagogue in Pittsburgh. There was the guy shut up the mosque in New Zealand, notably, right? And I was really bent out of shape about this because, okay, some guy walks into a synagogue and, you know, murders 11 people, and that's very bad, and you should not murder people whether they're in a synagogue or anywhere else. I I think that that's very, very bad to do. I I should not have to say that, but I have said it now twice. Um, But, like, the whole world is like, oh, my God, some maniac killed 11 people. This is a worldwide news story, and everybody's like, oh, my God, we have to, the whole world has to rise up against anti-Semitism because this guy walked into a church, uh, into a synagogue and killed 11 people. Okay. Well, fine. We're all against murder. I, I'm really actually not so bent out of shape about that. Maybe, you know, you could care about other murders, but I'm not going to tell you not to care about this one. Guy goes into a mosque, guns down 50 people, and uh, injures 50 more. And that's, you know, that's a lot of people to kill and injure, and everybody goes completely nuts over that and you know it went so far that like the prime minister um the female prime minister put on a hijab and then um uh disarmed her countrymen right and so that was uh i would go so far as to say um kind of kind of an extreme reaction that like oh well you know you killed a bunch of immigrants and now we're going to disarm the whole country that that seems to me a little bit of an overreaction but showed that they took it seriously enough. And so then there's like in April of 2019 over Easter weekend, um, there were nine terrorist attacks in Sri Lanka on Easter and they killed like 300 people and injured. I I don't even know how many more, but hundreds of people were injured. And um, like the response was very muted. Like even, you know, Donald Trump didn't go when, when, when um, um, Robert Bauer shot up the synagogue in Pittsburgh Donald Trump said, go out and destroy the people who want to destroy the Jewish people. And I'm like, all right, well, you know, I get I get why you feel that way, given your, you know, relationships. But um, he didn't say go out and destroy the people who want to destroy Christians. He said, we stand with the great people of Sri Lanka. Really? OK. And um, Barack Obama, when um, uh, uh, Brent and Tarrant shot up the, the mosque in New Zealand, Barack Obama was, we stand with the Muslim community. And when when nine 
bombs will go off in uh, Sri Lanka on Easter, killing a bunch of Christians. He says, um, um, what did he say? Oh, that's that, that was the whole title of the episode. He said, oh, we're, uh, we're, we're, we're very concerned about the tourists and the Easter worshipers. Yes. The Easter worship. Don't say Christian. You can't say that. Okay, they're Easter worshipers, and and they and they worship Easter, and uh, his name is Easter, Mister Easter, and um, and his bunnies and his chocolate filled, uh, cream filled chocolate eggs that they stash in the bushes for the children to find, and so you know, and then and then you are Santa Claus worshipers in December. It's the way it works, and so I was like, I was kind of bent out of shape about this, and. Uh, and I made this. Uh, I made this video in any case, and it's like forty-three minutes long, but it's definitely worth your time to watch. Two one seven six eight eight one four three three. If you'd like to be on the program, and the more you talk, the less I have to. So please do give us a call. Um, all right. So because these people didn't figure out the whole "be fruitful and multiply" thing, they like their dogs more than their babies, uh, according to Mary Harrington over at what's the name of this website here? Unheard. Well, you're heard now, lady. Uh, you were being, uh, you're only being read until I stumbled across your article, and now you're being heard uh, indeed. Tinder is now selling a childless dream. I should note that I don't actually know that this is her conclusion. I don't know that she's um, reaching the conclusion that um, people are failing to reproduce because they lost their faith in God. I don't know if that's what she's going to conclude, but we're going to find out. And it's kind of, um, maybe I should, I could show you this, as a matter of fact. Um, well, yeah, I don't need to do it. There's a picture of like a bunch of dogs in a stroller. Just imagine that I'm showing you my desktop because I, I made a configuration change. The last time I traveled on the London Underground, I had our Labrador, Safi, with me. Britain is a nation of dog lovers, but I was still surprised by how many strangers cooed over her. It was startling. In fact, the uh, compared to my uh, recollections of traveling on the tube with a baby in a push carriage, uh, push car, uh, push chair. What? This must be like a British thing. Push chair. A few years back. <clears throat> no contest. Safi got more love. So the ad I spotted in the tube carriage for the dating app Tinder seemed particularly fitting. It depicted a young, smiling couple in psychedelic clothing with the caption, finally having kids. They each rest one hand on a pushchair. In the pushchair is a dog. If given my recent experience, I can't believe, are you serious? They made a Tinder ad for this? Oh, we're finally having kids. We got a dog. Just keep on swiping, you freaking degenerates. That's what they're doing. They're literally like, stop reproducing. Just keep on swiping. We'll hook you up with sex partners. You can get a puppy. <laughs> you know what I don't like about this microphone? I can't. I can't laugh away from the microphone. It doesn't work as well. Like it's, it's very directional, and it's very good because you see what I'm saying? But anyway, <laughs> that's pretty, that's, that's pretty bad. Um, do you think that Tinder is going to start like buying advertisements? Like, why don't we just get you a vasectomy, huh? We'll do that. Do you, do you think that like they got the Tinder gold thing, right? So like Tinder gold is, I guess the, the premium thing you pay for Tinder gold. Do you think they'll start like giving away vasectomies with it? They'd be like, if you sign up for Tinder gold, we'll snip you. <laughs> Or maybe if you get snipped, you get a free year of Tinder Gold. That's what they'll do. They'll do that. 217-688-1433 if you'd like to be on the program. Um, if, given my experience, Londoners seem more partial to dogs than kids, this may not be the only way in which fur babies are on the up. According to last year's ONS data, um, ONS is uh, something to do in Britain. 
I'm sure. Let's find out what ONS is in Britain because I don't know the acronym. Uh, ONS, uh, half of women in England and Wales do not have uh, children by age 30. Is it only half? That's interesting. Um, and this is a link to an article in the Financial Times that does not immediately tell me what ONS is. So I'm just going to go ahead and guess that it's the Office of um, Natal Services. I'm making that up. I have no idea. Half of British women now reach age 30 without having kids. And Pets at Home CEO Lisa McGowan uh, thinks some of these have redirected their caring toward uh, urge their caring urges towards pets. They are all they are taking all that time and energy and attention and putting it into fur babies, especially in urban areas. I hate that term fur babies, and I hate it more now. You know, I used to think of fur babies as just stupid. Now I think it's genocidal. <laughs> Don't you say fur babies? You're trying to kill us. <laughs> McGowan speculates that this is happening because the classic milestones of adult life, such as getting your own place, seem increasingly out of reach to many thanks to scarce housing, rising costs, and stagnant wages. This feels plausible. In the U.S., studies show the stated desire for family size has remained consistent even as the birth rate has fallen. And one recent UK-based Rolling Stone investigation quoted many young couples for whom money is indeed the sticking point. But is that all there is to it? Prospects for Gen Z are not as optimistic as for their baby boomer parents, uh, baby boomer grandparents, I should say. But in absolute terms, human societies have lived through greater turbulence and gone on having kids. Birth rates remained buoyant, remained buoyant for example, in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Because, you know, that's exactly the same as talking about Britain. There's no difference between Britain and the Democratic Republic of Congo. So what's going on? Maybe she'll figure this out before the end of the article. But I'm just remarking on the amusement that I have in seeing this here. Oh, we're trying to figure out what's wrong in Britain. Why don't we go take a look over at the Congo and see, see how things are working out over there? Maybe if we emulate the behavior of the Congo, we can solve our problems. Maybe we'll just bring them here. We'll do that. Um, for example, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, which consistently makes the top 10 in fragile states index most of, of most unstable countries. So what else is in the mix? Well, you know, I'll let her. I'm not going to speculate. Let's see if she figures it out. Liberal feminist Jill Philopic, Philopophic, Philip, F-I-L-I-P-O-V-I-C, Philopophic. Yeah, philosophic argues that if more women are opting to have fewer or no kids, it isn't so much about the financial pinch. Certainly, among dog walking acquaintances locally, I can think of several childless, younger millennial heterosexual couples who seem, in, on the face of it, pretty sorted. Let me do this. If I do, yeah, okay. I, my headphones are a little uneven. Sorry who, on the face of it, seem pretty sort of good jobs, uh, comfortably off, often homeowners, sometimes even working flexibly from home. Ideally situated, in other words, for starting a family. And yet they have no kids. For some in this situation, the dog is an object of minute, loving observation and care and plays the central role in conversation that children usually do for young parents. Watching this, my sense is that although for some Economics is a factor in choosing between human babies in the fur variety. At least some of the time, it's not just about money. It goes, rather, to the heart of what we think the purpose of life is, and thus what we are. When I took our tube-traveling dog for checkup recently, the vet asked if we were planning to have her spayed. And she was like, no, but why don't you do me while I'm here? <laughs> Kidding. Um, she doesn't say that I'm 
Um, I'm just trying to entertain you. In discussing the pros and cons, the vet suggested one benefit would be that once neutered, she can just get on with being a dog. It's stuck in my mind. After all, isn't the productive cycle, the reproductive cycle, I should say, part of being a dog? In what sense would neutering Safi make her freer to be a dog? What kind of dogness is actively obstructed by the orgasmic urge to make more dogs? I'm sorry, organismic. I didn't mean to be degenerate with you. Organismic. It's not orgasmic. <laughs> I don't know anything about orgasms. Uh, do- I'm not going to even... I'm not even going to... Nah. If, as McGowan suggests, a great many young adults today are directing their parental instincts towards pets, I suspect a central reason is that we've embraced an equivalent understanding of humanness. That is, we've come to believe that the preconditions for realizing yourself fully, especially in the field of sex and relationships, now actively foreclose becoming a parent or at least radically reduce parenthood to one not especially appealing to uh, uh, one Reduce parenthood to one not especially appealing option among many. Given the pervasiveness of this message, the surprise shouldn't be that many young men and women are pouring that caregiving urge into fur babies, but that anyone is bucking the trend and still making the human sword. Fertility really started plummeting with the onset of the sexual revolution, while modernity consistently drives down birth rates. In the UK, with the exception of a wartime blip, the average number of children per woman remained above the replacement rate until the 20th century. It was only in the 60s, concurrent with the legalization of the pill, that rates began falling off a cliff, dipping below replacement levels in 1975, the year after contraceptives were made available to everyone free of charge. Oh, you started subsidizing sterilization, and then people were like, oh, well, you know... What, what am I doing this for? I get to have, uh, yeah. Britain's total fertility rate has remained below replacement ever since. People are not, they've been below replacement since 1975. Are you serious? Is it, <laughs> That's why they want to do it here. They're like, oh, I got an idea. Birth control was a human right, don't you know? You know, human, <laughs> they'll, they'll human right you right into no humans is what they'll do. People are not without agency, of course. Yes, they are. They have no idea. You're like, you don't even have to force them to take the birth control. You just subsidize it, and they stop reproducing. Like, of course they're without agency. They, like, you see what economic policy does to a country? My birth towards the end of the 70s, reading the female author, of course, um, my birth towards the end of the 70s attests to the fact that women didn't abruptly stop having kids just because they could suddenly control fertility. But if contraception acted uh, directly on fertility, it also it it also did so culturally by making it possible for the first time to treat sex and reproduction as two separate things. This was a seismic technological and cultural change. And one consequence was, as the Catholic feminist Abigail Favale puts it, that it became increasingly normal to see sex not as procreational activity, but as recreational one. And I suspect it's this shift, more than anything else, that's done most to undermine the once robust cultural association between parenthood and being a fully realized human adult. Cultural changes take a while to percolate, though. But half a century on from the original revolution, this worldview is so normalized that it's hard to imagine things any other way. For example, in Let's Talk About It, a 2021 educational book about sex and relationships aimed at teenagers, the procreational function of sex is acknowledged in passing but the overall emphasis is on sex as, in the book's term, 
a fun physical activity. Well, there you go. So you're like, all right, I got an idea. We'll legalize birth control. And, you know, maybe you think that that's a good idea. Maybe you don't. But all right, you legalize birth control, which keep in mind was controversial at some point. And then they were like, okay, now we're going to subsidize it. All right, well, you're going to subsidize it. Okay, fine, fine, whatever. You know what? There's people, you know what? We don't want those broke-ass people who can't afford the birth control to be breeding anyway, so let's just give it away for free. You know, it's not like the quality people in society are going to be influenced by that kind of petty (laughs) subsidy. No, Mm, no, they wouldn't do that. All right, now let's go start, you know, passing out educational textbooks in the schools. And this is, uh, and then we'll say that sex is a fun physical activity, which you can enjoy with the teacher if you want, because, you know, all those taboos are out the window. We don't do those things anymore. A great many things follow from viewing sex in this way. Firstly, if sex is primarily recreational, it genuinely doesn't matter what your sex, what sex your partner is, provided they want to have sex with you. Reproduction aside, the authors of Let's Talk About Let's Talk About It assert, your genitals exist to let you feel pleasure with yourself or others, no matter which genitals they may have. Wow, there you go. Well, that's what you're teaching kids in British public schools. That's fantastic. <laughs> that's great. Secondly, if the principal aim is recreation, then the relationship type doesn't matter. Studies have long shown that where children are concerned, growing up with two married parents is associated with better outcomes. As long as there is a general cultural consensus that sex is associated with children, then this is likely to be accompanied by the consensus that sexual desire should generally be pointed at marriage or at least long-term relationships. But if sex mainly is recreational, babies are emphatically not viewed as part of the story. Rather, as in Let's Talk About It, they are discussed as a risk attendant on sexual activity a negative event of the uh, same order as catching a sexually transmitted disease, of course. You wouldn't want to become infected with pregnancy, would you? Oh, my God. Well, you're going to have to go down to the abortion clinic and get that cured. (laughs) We're going to have to go cut that disease out of you, that, that parasitic uterine infection that that scumbag man put in you. Can't believe that he didn't go and get himself fixed so that he could go get on with being a dog, you know? It follows, too, that if sex is just a fun leisure activity, then you can have any kind of relationship you like. Accordingly, the book gives equal weighting to monogamy, polyamory, hookups, and abstinence, saying only that sexual intimacy is a powerful way to feel good and bond with another person, whether it's for a night or a lifetime. Well, it's great. Taken together, this worldview presents embodiment, sexual desire, sexuality, desire, and intimacy as coruscating. Well, why don't we get a vocabulary lesson? Because I have no idea what coruscating means, and I'll inform you right now as soon as I duck-duck-go this. I wouldn't use Google because I'm not an idiot. Uh, Present participle of coruscate. Well, that kind of is actually doesn't help my problem. Um, Coruscate means to give forth flashes of light, sparkle and glitter, to exhibit sparkling virtuosity, to glitter in flashes, to flash. Well, it's uh, to be flashy then. Taken together, this worldview presents embodiment, sexual sexuality, desire, and intimacy as flashy, uh, infinitely varied, expressive options in which uh, what anyone does should be limited only by individual preference and mutual consent. And if this is what being a fully realized person looks like, then by comparison, reproductive sex, the boring old heteronormative kind, is uh, constricting in the extreme, of course. 
Imagine you've grown up with this uh, set of messages, or at least something like it. Now you imagine you detect in yourself a buried hankering to be a mother or a father. In order to reach the starting blocks for doing anything about this longing, you'd need to unlearn about most of your culture's ambient assumptions about the field of sex and relationships, beginning with the received view that babies are not a source of joy but a threat. Then you'd have to question the taboo on connecting sexual desire with its reproductive end, which is to say, accept that if you're not try- if you're trying to make a baby, it really does matter what genitals your partner has. God, well, you wouldn't want to think that that's transphobic. Oh my God, you're gonna have to censor you. In the face of all this, it's no wonder that many who have absorbed some variant of this message simply embrace it and set out to enjoy the panoply of expressive sexual and emotional options now presented without judgment for selection. And this means uh, sidelining parenthood for within that paradigm, the uh, organismic, I almost did it again, the organismic urge to reproduce with all the limits it opposes on those expressive options presents itself not as an aspect of becoming fully human, but an obstacle to infinite ways in which we might do so. Self-neutering is now, as the vet suggested, of spaying sappy self-actualization. And should some glimmer of the ancient drive to care for dependence nonetheless fight its way to the surface, Tinder's latest ad campaign has the answer. Well, that's that, I did not know about the, the Tinder ad campaign. I'd say that that is the most um, the most interesting portion of this. And while uh, I guess uh, uh, Miss Harrington has uh, done some fine writing and that was amusing, I'm not sure it was so informative other than that. But um, I don't know. I don't see a whole lot of Tinder ads because I don't ride the the subway in uh, in Britain much. I don't know if you guys have seen Tinder ads. If you have, you feel free to call 217-688-1433. Let's see here. Let me go look at the uh, chats here and see if uh, I have anything that I must uh, convey there from. And go over here. Do, 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 do. I'm still here. I'm not quiet. Audio keeps needing refreshing. I'll catch the show after. Crimes in the West are a chance... You were having, um, uh, somebody's telling me that they were having audio problems on Rumble. I do not believe that that is uh, nearly universal. Um, does Grinder have a must-have dog category? I don't know. Don't use the app, but uh, I doubt it. You know, I, I imagine that um, you're probably not allowed to do that. I did hear that, I did hear that Grinder. if you don't know, Grinder is the all-male GPS-based dating app. Um, it's the AIDS app, I think is uh, what they call it. I think they call it that. Everybody calls it that. Um, I, that's probably not. It's probably not everybody. Some people just call it Grinder, but it's the AIDS app in any case. And so the on the AIDS app, um, do they have a must-have dog category? I don't know, but I know that you're not allowed to express racial preferences on there because <laughs> apparently that was like a major problem. I don't know if uh, you guys have ever heard that. Um, that was like a big thing. They were like uh, uh, people go on there and they'd say things. I don't know, no black guys or whatever, or only black guys. I don't know. I imagine if they were saying only black guys, that th- that wouldn't be a problem. But apparently somebody expressed a preference for white people, and that is definitely not allowed. And so they banned it. They're like, you're not allowed to express a racial preference on Grinder anymore. And, um, you know, if you're on Grinder, then, um, you know, why would you? you know, I, I'm not, I shouldn't. I'm sorry. So anyway, let's see him. I like all dogs. I don't see fur. That's pretty funny. Okay. Let's go another story here.
217-688-1433 if you'd like to be on the program. And we'll tell the list I have to. So please, you give us a call. Um, Taylor Lorenz was right all along. I did not expect to see this um, at um, Revolver News. And so that uh, that sounds pretty interesting, I'd say. It's probably a bunch of nonsense. This is actually at Cockburn's Gossip. And, um, you know, I don't know what uh, I don't know what usually goes on at Cockburn's Gossip. So I'm not really in a position to say. Journalists are out. Influencers are in. That's the chief finding from a new report by the Reuters Institute at the University of Oxford, which discovered that 55 percent of TikTok and Snapchat users and 52 percent of Instagram users get their news from personalities compared to 33 to 42 percent who get it from mainstream media outlets or journalists on the same platforms. <clears throat> Quote, this Reuters study once again validates what I have been saying for over a decade. Taylor Lorenz told Cockburn. Um. Uh, I don't know. Content creators are the new media, and it's been that way for a while. The Washington Post columnist has long banged the drum about the importance of emerging social media platforms and the importance of members of the media cultivating brands on them. Journalists have always been public figures, but I don't think every journalist is an influencer, nor do they need to be, Lorenz explains. It's increasingly clear that people trust other people, not institutions. Journalists themselves can't and shouldn't rely on legacy institutions to build up their platform, which is exactly what you did. Do you think that anybody would be listening to a word this idiot said if she didn't work for the Washington Post? This is hilarious. Is that a little bit better? I think that sounds a little bit better. I had the bass turned up probably a little bit too high here. Um, What are you saying? They should cultivate their own platform on the Internet. Not only does this help deepen the readers' trust in their work and strengthen the journalist's relationship with their audience, it also makes their work better. No. You are a clickbait retard who runs around harassing people on the Internet because you have a bunch of losers in your Twitter mentions telling you that it's a good idea to dox people. So I think that you're stupid and you were not right all along, but we'll continue. Influencers are responsible, uh, responsive to communities that the legacy media has long ignored. You're the Washington Post. You're telling me about the legacy media. Shut up. Lorenz, author of the forthcoming book, Extremely Online. Extremely Online. Influencers engage with the public in a way that many traditional media refuse to. Yeah, well, because the newspaper kind of has that quality to it. And we actually, we appreciate that. Um, right before we, you know, put it out for the dog to pee on because we don't have children. I can't be bothered to take my dog outside, so I let him pee on the I let him pee on the Washington Post. It makes me feel good. It's a political statement more than anything. What does the future hold? I'm a huge believer in legacy news institutions. I work for one, but um, they've uh, failed time and again to adapt to shifting modes of news consumption. Lawrence told uh, Lorenz told Cockburn, I sincerely hope that they get their act together and evolve the way uh, they work with journalists, because otherwise the most talented journalists of the next generation will never set foot in a newsroom. They'll simply set up shop on YouTube or on TikTok. I think that would be a loss. Um, lady, credible people wouldn't work for The Washington Post. So, like, obviously, you know. And for that matter, they won't stay on YouTube very long, because <laughs> once they start figuring out what's going on, YouTube's going to be like, get out of here, you know. You know what I saw was pretty funny recently? I'll get back to the story in a second because, you know, I like making fun of Taylor Lawrence. But uh, I went on YouTube looking for a video today. And I needed it for this. uh, I told you I edited this uh, thing that I published on the BitChute channel, uh, Losing My Religion. One of the things I wanted to do was, like, find video of this protest that I saw when I didn't have access to the Internet, right? I saw it on TV that there was this, like, maniac in front of a church. 
and um, she was um, she was a black woman. It just so happened to be. I'm not saying that it had anything to do with it, but she um, this black woman had a like white onesie bathing suit on, and I think she was wearing a wig, and um, and she had a baby doll, and she like put the baby doll in the baby in the bathing suit. And then she took the baby out of the bathing suit and said, I'm killing the effing baby and and was like rolling around the ground, smashing the baby's head. And it had like um, she had something that I suppose was supposed to look like entrails or the, the umbilical cord or something attached to it. And she's like rolling around on the floor and smashing the baby's face into the concrete and saying, I'm killing the effing. Ba-. I think what her moral of the story was, is that like. Do you want me reproducing? And I'm like, no, I definitely don't. Like, you should definitely not even be in my country, you know. And so I don't know that, you know, this is a, I mean, like, I mean, if you were aborted, maybe, you know, but anyway. Moving to an influencer-driven eco. Oh, but the point, the reason I started to say this is because this maniac is behaving this way. And then YouTube age-restricted the video, which I discovered, of course, because I was banned from YouTube in 2017. And now as long as I'm logged into my Gmail account, I cannot, with that same web browser, (laughs) view an age-restricted YouTube video. Okay, I still have my Gmail, um, but I cannot log into YouTube at all. It's not just that I can't upload. I cannot at all log into YouTube with that Gmail account. (laughs) Uh, not even to view an age-restricted video. And so I went out and I was like, somebody try to get me this video? I, ha- I do have another, you know, Gmail account that I could do it with, but it's a pain in the neck. Apropos of nothing, you can follow the uh, Spectator World on... Oh, you're just plugging your Instagram like a loser. Well, whatever. So whatever. She's like, yeah, go on social media if you're a journalist. Yeah, I get it. Okay, fine. This is not interesting. Shut up. You waste my audience's time. I can't believe you did that to me. Revolver News, like, I don't know what's wrong with you people sometimes. Sometimes Revolver News is pretty good. Other times, um, they're not. And um, that's totally wrong because you have to be good all of the time. Otherwise, you're going to end up like me. (laughs) Um, And I've got this story now. I'm going to tell you the other problem with Revolver News is sometimes the sources are like, well, why am I reading this at something weird? This is HeadlineUSA.com. Have any of you ever heard of HeadlineUSA.com? HeadlineUSA.com sounds to me like somebody who's trying to sound credible artificially, I would say. Oh, let's think of a site that sounds like a news site. What do you want to call it, guys? Let's call it FakeNews.org. And they're like, no, they'll know it's fake. Okay, let's call it HeadlineUSA. And somebody's like, that's fantastic. Nobody will know. But anyway, HeadlineUSA.com says key witness in Biden Burisma scandal reportedly found dead. The current leftist American government is currently running on an intense running an intense cover up operation to hide the evidence of Biden's corruption from the American people, says Dmitry Henry Alexandrov. Oh, my God, this is the Ruskies, isn't it? The Russian disinformation I should have known. Update, some on Twitter are suggesting that the reports surrounding the death of the Biden whistleblower may, in fact, be an example of parsed or distorted language that used former Mayor Rudy Giuliani's recent Newsmax interview to reach a misleading conclusion. Well, that certainly sounds like something the Ruskies would do. It's definitely not the SBU doing this. It should be noted that Headline USA is not independently verified Miss Listen's death nor verified her status as a whistleblower. Okay, so, like, are you telling me that you wrote a story? All right. So I'm not even going to do it. 
All right. I'm not going to read you nonsense. They're like, well, we saw somebody on Twitter said that a whistleblower was dead. And so we published that story at Headline USA that said the whistleblower was dead. And then everybody was like, you're a bunch of liars. And they were like, okay, well, we'll publish an update to the story. And Revolver News just leaves it there because, you know, because they're, I, they're not concerned with their credibility, I guess. It's unfortunate. That's really unfortunate. And so... Two one seven six eight eight one four three. It's the top story there too. It's really kind of bad. Turley says the DOJ's case against Trump just took a bad turn. Well, I don't think so. Africa's richest city is crumbling under chaos and corruption. That's so weird because I figure in Africa they probably got the money out of politics already because not everybody's broke, and so you would think like in Africa there's probably no corruption because. People don't have any money there. <laughs> um, let me see him. Sorry, sorry, sorry. In a just world, in a homogenous society in 1965 America, Cantwell would be a nationally syndicated newspaper columnist and or TV editorialist. In this um, uh, certain control of uh, USA, though, it's him and us here on an obscure Odyssey channel. Well, you know, that's okay. We're also on an obscure Rumble channel, by the way, and that's great. So thank you very much for uh, everybody who's watching. Let's see what people are saying on the Rumble chat before I go on to another story. Um, uh, Caleb G's said, um, just saw a young woman today biking with a dog in a baby carriage. Yeah, well, you get to fact check. You get a fact check tab on your post if you say it's cooler than normal global warming, you know. Oh, that's pretty funny. You go on, you go on uh, Facebook. That's when I was talking about Facebook earlier. That you're not allowed to criticize the. You're not about to say positive things about the weather because it's racist. That's not how it works. If you go out and you say it's nice out today, they're like, "Hey, it's getting hot out because you're driving an SUV." And you're like, "I don't even have a car." And they're like, "Shut up, racist." Crimes in the West are a chance for self-flagellation. Congo just has that post-war baby boom going on forever because they are always at war. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Congo just has that post-war baby boom going on forever because they're always at war. We should do that. We're getting there. That's going to be that's going to fix everything. We'll have perpetual civil war in the United States and then just like, you know, the women will just be pumping out babies because it'll be like, oh, well, you know, hey, war's over. Okay, well, you know, it's going to be on at sunrise, you know. (laughs) Better get on with it. A lot of people are ending up dead in connection to Ukraine, Biden, and things of this nature. The SBU killed Alexander Dugan's kid by um, by accident trying to get him. It's a mess. Well, yes, the SBU is a bunch of murdering um, lunatics. They are. They're very dangerous. They're a corrupt criminal enterprise, um, and they mobbed my Twitter account and got me suspended from Twitter. That's why the Twitter audience isn't able to watch us on Twitter today. That's really unfortunate because I was looking forward to uh, streaming to Twitter all the time. And they're like, you know, here's the funny thing. You know what Twitter does? Twitter's like, hey, uh, you can appeal this thing, and you can, uh, and we'll get to it when we, whenever we get to it. Or you can delete the tweet that we say is uh, offending us. But if you delete the tweet, then you can't appeal this decision after that. So you're you're basically you could delete the tweet and confess to the crime you've been accused of, or uh, you could be suspended from Twitter. And I'm like, well, I guess I'll be suspended from Twitter. 
because you might know, like I, I, um, I was buying advertisements. I was looking forward to, you know, enabling the monetization features on Twitter. And if you, uh, you have strikes on your account, you can't do that. So I'm like, well, no, like I'm not going to confess to a crime I didn't commit just to get back on Twitter. And by the way, I'm paying you $8 a month. So like, maybe you like hurry up and do it. Like I'm a paying customer. What's wrong with you? The SBU came around because I, I said things about uh, Vladimir Putin that were not condemnatory in their nature. And I said that um, Ukraine was a cesspool of espionage and um, corruption, which is true, by the way. But you're not allowed to do that, you see. And so the, the SBU is the Ukrainian intelligence service. And so they create fake Twitter accounts and then they reported everything that I ever posted. And I know that because they're doing it from Germany. And in Germany, the law is you have to inform somebody when um, you are reviewing their account for this reason. And so uh, now, of course, the, the the account didn't tell me, oh, well, the SBU did it, you know, but they're, that's what they're doing, of course. And so they reported everything that I ever said. And they were like, these were all not violations of our rules. So you're all set. But this one is. So delete it and you can use Twitter again. And I'm like, okay, but you won't let me appeal it afterwards? No. Okay, well, I'm just going to have to wait because I'm going to go buy Twitter advertisements that are not in Ukraine's interests. And uh, and that's going to happen. And so uh, that's why I'm not on Twitter. But I am Talk Radio God on Twitter if you'd like to follow me. And then hopefully eventually I'll get back on. 217-688-1433 if you would like to be on the program. Let's see here. Let me go back to my news, Tam. Uh, what is this here? Africa's richest city is crumbling under chaos and corruption, which is so weird. I figured they would have gotten the money out of politics and everything would be straight over now. Johannesburg was built on gold. Well, there's your problem. There's gold there. There's gold in the Mar Hills, and now everything's corrupted. It's now such a mess that homeless people direct the traffic. Well, that's nice of them. <laughs> Usually they just put dirty water on your windshield and demand money in, in Johannesburg. They, uh, they direct traffic for you. That's very good. That's, you know... Do they demand tips? They're like, hey, you could go now, but I want a dollar. Solomon Owa's fingers work quickly because as he speak uh, quickly as he speaks over the hum of his sewing machine. That's because the hum of his sewing machine might stop at any minute. A few minutes in, the power will go, he says. The 51-year-old runs a tailoring business from his garage in Johannesburg. Um, outages leave him idle for up to 10 hours a day, surrounded by piles of colorful material he needs to work while he can. It's a rush that South Africans have begrudgingly become accustomed to as they're forced to use more and more ingenuity to navigate daily life, charge devices, take a shower before the hot water goes off, and leave the house before the traffic lights go out. Schools, hospitals, restaurants, businesses, they all rely on backup generators to keep running. Homeless people guide vehicles through potholed streets for cash. Well, who's giving them the cash? Hey, bum, direct the traffic. Well, no. All right, I'll give you 20 bucks. All right. The continent's richest city was built on gold, but now it's defined by chaos, crime, and corruption more than ever. It encapsulates the wider collapse of basic services across South Africa from a broken railway network disrupting trade to archaic sanitation that triggered a recent cholera outbreak near the capital, Pretoria. Parts of the uh, country increasingly look like a failing state. Which is weird because, like, they were going to straighten the whole, like, white supremacy problem out. They're like, hey, look, you know, you got to have, we want democracy now, like now, now. 
You guys are not allowed to run things. I don't care how much you improved it. You're obviously making things worse by being white. Go away. Give us your land. We're going we're gonna to make better use of it. At the heart of the dysfunction in Johannesburg. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop. Let's, let's speculate about what this article says it is. This is over at Bloomberg. Bloomberg is going to tell us what's at the heart of this problem. And it's definitely not going to be the abolition of the apartheid government. It's definitely going to be something other than democracy. What do you uh, do you care to speculate what it might be? Two one seven six eight eight one four three three. Um, you know, I have my soundboard up, but I don't have the thing memorized, and so I don't know. Um, for example, where my do 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 do. I don't know where it is, but we have this. Yeah, now I, we have suspense music. We have also have this one. So what do you think it is, ladies and gentlemen? 217-688-1433. If you'd like to call in with your answer, winner gets the right answer. If you call in and you have the right answer, we'll say thank you, and then we'll hang up the phone. 217-688-1433. Do you think that it is the abolition of the apartheid government? Do you think that the problem is democracy? Do you think the problem is that the people of South Africa are a bunch of lunatics and can't govern themselves? Call in at 217-688-1433 and let us know your answer within the next two seconds. Otherwise, the music's going to stop, and then we're not going to take your call. And I'm going to end the show early, and you guys are going to be SOL. At the heart of the dysfunction in Johannesburg is a governance crisis. Oh, well, there you go. It's a governance crisis, of course, you know. It's a governance. It's probably campaign. It's probably money in politics. There was all that gold there, and now it's gone, and now everybody's corrupted. Since the country's governing national party, the African National Congress, lost control of the city in 2016, unstable coalitions have resulted in six mayors in four years. The current leader is the member is a member of a party that holds one percent of the municipality's 270 seats. So there you go. So we've been talking. Uh, I don't know if we talked about it so much on Surreal Politics, but we've talked about it a great deal elsewhere. About, like, third parties. You know what you guys really should do? You guys should go run for Congress in South Africa. Because if you get 1% of the legislature, then you could become mayor of Johannesburg, and then you could be held responsible for all this nonsense. Services and maintenance are the most visible cause casualty. Then there are the rolling blackouts implemented by ESCOM Holdings, SOC Limited. The state-owned power utility, which has become a byword in recent years for South Africa's troubles has a fleet of coal-fired power stations that are old, poorly maintained, and badly designed. Well, you're just going to have to, you've got to get some windmills over there. South Africa doesn't have enough windmills. That's what you really need. Get some solar panels. I hear it's sunny over there. You guys will be all set, and you'll stop the climate change thing. Talk to Joe Biden. He'll get you some subsidies. He knows a guy in China. <laughs> hey, uh, I know I got this guy. His name's uh, Xi Jinping. He'll get you some uh, solar panels. Just get them coal-fired power plants out of there. We'll take them out of there for you. We'll recycle them over in China for you. The country still functions, but the hurdles are getting higher. We may not be at the point in South Africa where we are a failed state, but we are certainly a failed government, said Tessa Dooms, director of nonsense statements at uh, Rivonia Circles. It's not her official title, but you get the idea. A nonprofit organization whose stated aim is to transform South Africa into a robust, sustainable democracy. Well, and if you fail at that mission, what do you do then? Do you keep on trying? Well, I guess that depends on who's paying you, doesn't it, um, Tessa Dooms? 
Hey, uh, my name's Dooms, and I'd like to make your country into a healthy, stable democracy. And I'm not going to mention demographics one bit. I'm just going to I'm just going to come in there and do as my name implies. <laughs> we don't feel the effects of having a failed state because of other sectors of society continuing to function, she said. But we are certainly feeling the effects of failed governance, you know, because, you know, the government has failed, but everything else is fantastic, you know. The criminals, they're doing great. You know, they they work day and night. They never stop. It's just that there's no police to stop them. And, you know, that leads to some, you know, social problems. Johannesburg needed 300 billion rand, about $16.3 billion, to build new infrastructure, power, water, sanitation, and make up repairs. Uh, and to make repairs, I should say. According to former mayor... Oh, this is your problem. So you're not allowed to have this many consonants in a row. So his name is M-P-H-O Falatse. Now, you can have M-P-H after a vowel, but you can't start that way, okay? I don't know what you guys are doing over there in South Africa, but that's not how I speak English. The current administration, Mumfo, well, you're Umfo or something, you know. I, I shouldn't talk. I shouldn't talk smack. I think the the Russians do that too. They start words that way, and I'm like, well, I had to ask a guy who speaks Russian that I w- I was at a place that didn't have internet access, and I asked him like, what you know, like, what's a uh, you know, Donetsk, right? So like, D N, you know, a word starts with D N. You're like, well, I get. Well, anyway. The current administration plans to spend the lion's share of its latest budget on sustainable services to help clear the backlog of improvements. That's about 60 billion rand, according to the plan unveiled on June 13th by Dada Morero. Well, that's that's the problem. You're like, hey, Dada, can you be the government? They're like, yeah, I'll be your Dada. And he's like, well, what do you know about being the government? He's like, I'm your Dada. Shut up. Another former mayor and now an ANC member of the Finance Committee. While we are cognizant of the growing backlogs, we are limited in our ability to respond due to the uh, suppressed revenue performance in recent years. Well, uh, Johannesburg became Africa's richest city thanks to a gold rush that started in the late 19th century and continued through up through the apartheid era. And that was all there was to it is the gold. And it continued like through the apartheid era. And then after that apartheid went away, so did the gold. Weird, weird coincidence. The metropolis of more than 5 million people then became the economic dynamo of Nelson Mandela's Rainbow Nation. <laughs> and, uh, and the hope for prosperity that came with it. Almost half of the population is unemployed and living in poverty. So, you know, it was kind of short-lived, but whatever is nice, you know. That's what happens when you spend all of the nation's money right away. You know, you're like, hey, guys, look, we're having a great time. And then you're like, well, where, where's the rest of the money? You're like, well, we spend it. What do we do now? Well, where's the gold? Well, we don't have any. <laughs> it's amazing how government, you know, how closely government resembles private life, you know. It's not actually that amazing at all. I mean, it's you know, predictable. They're like, okay, well, we've got all this money, guys. Let's go spend it. And they're like, look at how great this is working out. We're spending all this money, and things are great. We have a rainbow nation. Things are awesome. Okay, guys, so now that we've spent the money, now what? Well, you wouldn't want to answer that question. You get banned from Twitter for that. Um, meanwhile, crime has proliferated. You don't say. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Oh my God, crime? Why would crime happen? Why would that occur in South Africa? <laughs> uh, the once flourishing central business district is an eyesore where <laughs> derelict buildings are hijacked by criminal syndicates, forcing out major commercial operations from the area. For more petty criminals, in vogue are cables and metals that can be stolen from electricity substations and sold on the black market. Others just try to connect to the grid illegally. The power cuts made the morning and evening commute an obstacle course as motorists weave around gaping holes, <laughs> uncovered manholes, unattended sinkholes, and exposed power cables. Seeing homeless people in groups of 10, groups of up to 10, control traffic when the lights go out is now a common occurrence. Given, uh, it, this is a person's name, given. Given Massiendi, a self-appointed traffic... <laughs> Uh, given Massiendi, a self-appointed traffic controller, moved. <laughs> I love how that just goes over. They don't have to explain to you how a person becomes a, a self-appointed traffic controller. They're like, listen, we just explained to you that things have completely fallen apart after apartheid, and now there's a self-appointed traffic controller, and you're supposed to accept that without explanation, okay? Just get on with it. Moved to Johannesburg eight years ago from his village in Venda, more than 500 kilometers, 310 miles away. Things didn't go his way, and he found himself on the streets. What do you don't say? His latest gig has proven more lucrative than begging. In the morning, Massiendi goes to a corner shop where the owner gives him the load-shedding schedule for the day so he can position himself by traffic lights when they go out. Motorists embrace the makeshift solution to keep traffic moving, given a trip that should take 15 minutes end up in two hours. On an average day, Massiendi says he can make up to 300 rand in tips from drivers. Officials are less happy. Uh, police have been the most hostile towards us, said Massiendi, 32. They get picked up and dumped on the outskirts of the city, he said. Our, cr our only crime is directing the traffic. Well, you know. Then stop directing the traffic. It's illegal. You know, no, I, I forget. Yeah, that's right. Obeying the law is for white supremacists. And so you wouldn't want to do that. You guys are still kicking a whole apartheid, the leftovers of it. They still have cops there. You know, cops are white supremacy. You might have heard. That's your problem. You haven't abolished the police yet. Go ahead, do that. You'll straighten the whole thing out. They're, they're what's holding you. Back. That's the last remnants of your apartheid government is the police that are arresting your homeless people directing traffic. If you just get rid of them, then the homeless people can direct the traffic and everything will be straightened out. No wonder your economy is in shambles. <laughs> Go ahead, do it, do it, do it. The outages also provide the cover of darkness for more serious misdemeanor. In Rudiport, Rudiport, I don't know if that's saying that right, west of Johannesburg, 12 uh, mini local substations costing 700,000 rand each have had to be replaced in the space of two weeks. Well, that's probably because people are stealing the cables. Because you still have police, and that's why you have crime. Residents in the suburb of Fjordhof went without power for six days after a transformer was stolen during load shedding. <laughs> they just stole the transformer. It's more than meets the eye, I tell you. Uh, load shedding between 10 p.m. and 12.30 a.m. one night. Local resident Sifo Mazigo, 45, said he had to rely on a small, glass, uh, small gas cylinder to heat water and barbecue what they could. All of our food for the month was spoiled, he said, uh, on his street near the vandalized electricity station. Eerily quiet, except for the buzz of a generator coming from the only house with lights. Well, you better hide that generator, fella, because you're going 
you're gonna be you're gonna have a problem. On day four, we had to take out all of the meat, braille it, braille it, whatever, cook it, I guess, eat it, and give the rest away. City Power, which procures electricity from SCOM and distributes it in Johannesburg, reckons it lost more than 500 million rand over the past year as a result of materials damaged or stolen during the load shedding. The infrastructure is unable to cope with the surge that comes with the return of power, which damages cables and substations, prolonging darkness for days at a time. Is that what's prolonging the darkness? There's also the uh, the question of whether they can um, get hold of the supply in the first place. As a business, we pay around 19 billion rand to ESCOM for electricity annually, but half the time we don't get that electricity, said power uh, city power spokesman. Isaac Mangina. It means that we have wasted that money and we are not making any profit. Well, that's how that's how that works, actually. SCOM chairman Mumfo Makwana. How many Mumfos are there in South Africa? And why are they all in charge of things? Uh, uh, said, and they're, they're probably very good at what they do, Mumfos. Uh, with Bloomberg on June 9th, that a change in management structure has helped improve... In performance and blackouts are being reduced. That's probably little consolation to the justice to justice. It could it could whatever this guy in South Africa. You get it. Um, Opa Rugo, uh, his small restaurant in the inner city has been hit by both crime and power outages. The once lucrative business is now on its last legs because of energy insecurity. 52 was forced to dismiss half his staff and move to a smaller premises, but he's still losing money because his staff are now coming in and stealing every day. I, I inserted the last part. He, but he is still losing money. On a day last month, he had cooked 2,000 rand worth of food and sold only a fifth of that. A local gang also demanded that he pay 350 rand a week in protection money. In the morning, I can no longer start cooking... Uh, early, like I used to, because they take electricity, said Uh who added that he couldn't afford to buy a generator or switch to gas like some larger restaurants. When you wake up, he, when, when you wake up, it's not there. A number of business leaders have raised the alarm over the nation's current trajectory. The central bank estimates that power cuts cost the country, uh, cost the economy 900 billion rand a day and will shave two percentage points off this year's growth rate. In recent weeks, they met with President Cyril Ramaphosa and pledged their support in the three critical areas of energy, logistics, law, and order, according to Cass Kuvadia, uh, chief executive officer of lobby group Business Unity South Africa. You're going to have to talk to Mr. Cohen. Uh, for Solomon Owa, the tailor, it feels like he's been here before. Now married with two children because, you know, in Africa, they're like, well, you know, the electricity's out. Uh, we can't make any money. The inflation's off the roof. But um, <laughs> condoms? <laughs> what? You think I'm going to put it? I'm going to I'm going to do what with it? No, I leave it in there. Stupid. That's the whole entire point of the enterprise. Um, the first sign of decay, he noticed, was the dirt, and now he needed to uh, polish his shoes more often, he said. Then came the rest. What happened? What happens when the lights go out? Vandalizing starts, he said. My country went the same way, the same route. After some years, things fall apart. Everything is gone. Oh, I, I left out them. Um, he's uh, from Nigeria's Delta State is where he's uh, from. So. 
So, yeah, everything's falling apart in South Africa. That's very unfortunate. I thought you had the whole, like, any of the whole apartheid thing would straighten it all out, but apparently it hasn't. So I guess there's still white people left. You're going to have to get rid of those folks. They're obviously in a lot of trouble. Ladies and gentlemen, we do this every Monday at 9.30 p.m. I do other shows on the uh, on the uh, Odyssey channel, but not on Rumble. If you guys are watching on Rumble, thank you. Rumble's great. Love Rumble. You guys are fantastic. Thank you so much for watching on Rumble. But uh, if you should get on my, you should go to ChristopherCantwell.net, as a matter of fact. Get on the mailing list over there. And when you get your email, if it goes to the spam folder, make sure that it never goes to the spam folder again. You can figure out how to whitelist it or whatever you want, whatever you need to do. Or if you sue Google, be like, hey, I signed up for this and you took it away from me and now I'm going to sue you. Do whatever you have to do. Just make sure it's not in your spam folder. I don't really care if you get, you know, lawyers involved. Whatever you want to do. But get on the mailing list at ChristopherCantwell.net and then you get informed of like everything. Okay, so. I do. I actually do shows Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. I work very hard three days a week, and and on the other days of the week, I work very hard to be prepared for those shows. And you wouldn't know that by the fact that I'm making this up as I go along. But seriously, I'm trying very hard. And so you should pay me, of course. Uh, SurrealPolitics.com/slash/join. We'll uh, show you how to become a member. And then if you are a member, then you can join us for the Wednesday show, which is only for members. Like other people can't do that. So like Dave in New York, he's not allowed to do the the live. Um, the live Wednesday show. So Dave in New York, he emailed me and Dave in New York. If you know, some, you guys haven't heard, if you've only listened to surreal politics, you don't know about Dave in New York yet. People who have been following me for a while, they know who Dave in New York is. And, um, Dave in New York, um, he, he's not, uh, shall we say the most socially talented. Is that the nice word that I can use? I think that's all right. Um, why does this say the live stream has ended? My live stream has not ended, in fact. Why does it say that? Anyway, I'm pretty sure that it hasn't, right? I'm pointing at the screen to make sure. Yeah, okay. No, it didn't. Uh, on well, I'm looking at on Rumble, and on the bottom of the thing, it said the live stream has ended. And I'm like, what is that? You know, see, now I see myself pointing at the screen. Anyway, so it hasn't ended, and you guys know that because you're watching. Um, but Dave in New York, he emailed me, and he's like, because, you know, on a prior episode of The Radical Agenda, I said, um, I, I, I called the people who aren't paying, I called them freeloaders. And I said I was very grateful to have the freeloaders, as it were. I actually said very something very nice about the bums who don't pay. And that was not received very well by Dave in New York at all, because Dave does not work. Or at least he doesn't, he's incapable of holding a job because because he doesn't care what other people want. And you might know that, like, employers really don't want to pay you if you don't care about what they want. Employer, people who pay are really big on you know getting what they want, I, I know. And so um, Dave emails me, and he's like, you should stop asking for money. Get a real job. And if you've ever listened to a Dave in New York call, you understand how preposterous that is. Dave used to call in here all the time and be like, how do I get a job that pays lots of money and doesn't want me to work? And by the way, I'm willing to go to the interview, but they have to pay for the interview and they have to like pay for my gas money. Like, why am I going to go to the interview? And I'm like, do you have like marketable skills? Do you have a college education? Do you have anything that anybody wants? No. By the way, Chris, how do I get a girl to sleep with me? Like, it was hilarious. So like Dave always would just call in and be like, how do I get the things that I want? And I'm like, well, the way that you get the things that you want is by satisfying the needs of others, Dave. And he, that that goes woo right over Dave's head. He, he can't comprehend this at all. And so he doesn't have any money. And so when I'm like, hey, you know, if you enjoy what I'm doing and you think it's valuable, then you should pay me. And Dave's like offended by that. He's like, no way. I'll pay you. Are you crazy? Like, I don't even have any money. You know, how if you tell me how to get money, then maybe I'll spend it on something else, but not you. 
doesn't matter if I've been listening to you for a decade. I just I just want I just want to I just want to be entertained and have girls, you know, touch me down under my belt and stuff. And I understand that impulse. I mean, that's nice. That sounds like a good time or whatever. But anyway, so Dave emailed me. He's like, get a job. And I'm like, this is my job, you idiot. What do you think I'm doing? Why do you think I do this? Because people throw shekels at me and and sometimes even dollars or like Bitcoin or whatever. And so that's what I do for a living. And that's why I'm very, uh, that's what I'm usually pretty good at because I'm a professional, Dave. And so <clears throat> why is Dave still in New York? Is he trapped? Because Dave, what is he going to do? What is he going to do? Is he just going to like take his money and go spend it on something? He doesn't have any. He uh, has a benefits transfer card of some sort, and um, he has subsidized housing or whatever. And basically, he's you know he's a ward of the state because because he doesn't care about what other people want. You know? So he could call in here anytime he wants. By the way, I have open phones. You might have heard, but uh, and we used to love Dave's calls. Dave was very entertaining. I've told him a few times you should call in. He's like, yeah, maybe. All right, we'll find Dave. But as a matter of fact, Dave, you know, you could have had the membership. I offered you a free Surreal Politics uh, membership. I was like, hey, Dave, you've been around for a long time. I know you're hard on uh, money. And so I'll give you the membership. And then you can come chat with us. You could join, like, the members-only video chats on Wednesday is what we do. Um, and they're a lot of fun. And I was willing to give him a free membership, but he didn't take me up on it. And then he, you know, emails me. He's like, get a job, you bum. And I'm like, oh, that is that is rich in the extreme coming from you. And so all of that is to say that you should pay me as how I was like just working that in. This is what I call solicitation. Dave thinks it's illegal. <laughs> Dave's, Dave said it's illegal to solicit. I'm like, I think you're thinking of a different sort of solicitation, Dave. He sent me a link to like a Google search result or something. Solicitation illegal. Yeah, you're not allowed to go around and be like, hey, give me money for sex. You're not allowed to solicit in that fashion, Dave. And if you do that, you know, I don't know. You might make a buck depending on where you're going, but, you know, it's not going to work out well. <laughs> and so uh so anyway so yeah i mean you shouldn't be like dave you should pay for your entertainment or whatever and that'd be fine and then when you do that then we'll have good uh we'll have a lot of fun thank you so much tony thank you so much um let me do this over here where, where are all your names thank you so much to tony maybe and maybe next time you folks are wonderful thank you so much for your support thank you to everybody who is watching for free because even though i joke about you being freeloaders and it's not really a joke i really am very happy to have your attention and so keep on listening if you pay me someday fantastic if you don't then maybe you could just like share this with somebody else you could tell somebody how great i am you could um you know what you could do you, you don't have to pay for a membership you don't even like give me the donations you could go buy bumper stickers and go to uh, surrealpolitics.com slash shop and you could buy like merch like you can give me money and you'll actually get things in return for it that would be a great idea i'll ship them i'll put it in the mail i'll put it in the mail for you you don't even have to come here and get it i'll put it in the mail for you okay i work hard i'm serious okay um and you could go to uh you could even just go um you know what you do you go to rightwingsecurity.com and then you find out about security products and stuff That'd be great. You could learn about things and click on my ads and then buy services, and you'll be all set. And then we'll be back. I'll be back Wednesday. I'll be back Friday. And, then of course, we'll be back here for another episode of Surreal Politics next Monday and every Monday at 9.30 on Rumble and Odyssey. Get on my mailing list, ChristopherCantwell.net slash subscribe. I'll see you very soon. It's been a real pleasure hanging out with you folks, even though you don't talk to me. I mean, you know, it'd be nice if uh, you were a little more chatty. But eventually, I'll learn your confidence, and then you'll start calling in. We'll talk. We'll have a good time, you know. And then I'll start, once I get back on Twitter, then I'll buy the advertisements uh, with the money that you send me. And then more people will call in. They'll be like, oh, my God, you're fantastic. I need to talk to you. Uh, somebody wants a Telegram link in the chat? Sure. 
what's uh, there's a couple of telegram links as it were. So there's the surreal politics uh, telegram link, and uh, there's the um, the other thing. There's the other one, which is uh, right here. We'll do this. I'm gonna copy that over on the Rumble there. Surreal politics, and then there's the Christopher Cantwell one, which is shall we say, uh, you know, that's uncensored. You should be warned, okay? Because you know we gotta uh, we gotta keep some people happy. You understand? So it's been a real pleasure hanging out with you this evening, and I hope that you had a good time, and I hope that you have a wonderful Tuesday. Because it's Tuesday. I mean, what's not good about Tuesday? You know?